Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read 1 through 7, and I'm not actually going to be able to tackle it all today. But we'll still read it. Uh, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was, made, uh, was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, uh, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before uh, he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We could preach a series on that. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as not unseen in irreverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he commended uh, the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. As you notice, faith is used a lot there. This is the word of the Lord minus the last sentence I said. Uh, we've been in the book of Hebrews for over 20 weeks now. We've been there for a while, and we're crossing over into this 11th chapter together today, which serves as kind of a, a Mount Rushmore masterpiece on the concept of faith, specifically uh, biblical faith. It's chocked full of so much goodness that we're going to camp out here for uh, at least uh, four weeks or, or, or four weeks. Uh, and uh, Garrett's actually going to close down this section on faith. Uh, Blake is going to open up the, the next section in chapter 12. So a little forecasting when you'll get to hear from some of the other elders as well in that. But we're going we're gonna to spend a while in this asking that the Lord teach us about faith and enrich in our faith. But we need to do some groundwork to remember the context of this chapter. It's not uncommon to see people do in churches a series on faith that's a solo project on Hebrews chapter 11 by itself. Uh, they'll take it by itself outside of the previous 10 chapters, uh, outside of the theme of the entire book, or even the original audience's context, and they'll preach it out on uh, an island without a proper framework that it's meant to be held inside of. And when this happens, it's impossible to see the fullness of the chapter. And you might actually, on accident, end up with a lens that the author never actually intended for you to have. And you may actually think that God is saying some things that he never actually was trying to say. Context here is important. So for this context, Hebrews, as I've kind of laid before us over and over and over, probably almost 20 times now, was written to a group of believers who were struggling because their faith was causing them uh, some serious strife. They were being persecuted in all areas of culture, in the markets and in their neighborhood and everywhere else you could think of. The Christ who said, count the cost before you follow me, was proving to actually have a real cost to follow. And they're feeling the weight of, of, of the tension of following him and, and, and catching kind of kickback from the world around them for it. Now, the level of the persecution that the people uh, that this was written to were, were receiving uh, would have varied from person to person. Not everyone was thrown in jail and, and beaten, but 
but some were, and even those who, who were not still lived in the shadow of fear and anxiety because though you may not be thrown into to, to jail, if, if one of your close friends in, in the church with you is, what's going to happen for you every night when you go to bed? Are they coming for me next? Is, is that going to happen? Am I, I going to lose my job? Am I, I going to lose my commerce? There'd be this unending kind of fear and anxiety over what's going to happen next. When will the culture who's already not fond of me turn on me and, and try and, and hurt me or my family? With this tension in mind, some believers were looking at the exit, wondering if it would be easier to go back to, to Judaism from the old covenant ways of living. In short, they wondered, hey, should we just kind of cut the Jesus part out of faith? Uh, and would we be better off and would it be easier in the culture and our experience of life if we just kind of abided in and landed in the sacrificial system and the law and Old Testament priests and ceremonial washings? What if we like double down on that and cut the Jesus part out? Would that be a viable, better option for our days? The, the logic would have been something like, okay, our, ancestor, our ancestors didn't have Jesus around and they kind of did okay-ish, some of them. So maybe we kind of do the stuff that they did, and, and then we stop worrying about the tension. You know, they kind of played the, the, the little game of manipulating things. Well, they didn't follow him necessarily, even though they didn't, didn't realize that maybe we can do that as well. This is the context that the author uh, is writing into and why the author in Hebrews has worked so hard to say Christ is better than anything. Just Christ is better, period. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, all the Old Testament symbols, all the Old Testament prophecies. Christ isn't something you can work around to to follow the law and do okay. He's the one that the entire Old Testament pointed to. It was all about him. He fulfilled the law. He is, was, and always will be the promised Messiah, Redeemer, person who God would send to redeem all of his children. It might be helpful, Sam Storms puts it this way, uh, that, that Hebrews 11 has bookends around it. So like a, a marker on the front side and a marker on the, the end. So a, a couple of verses before Hebrews 11 in chapter 10, verse 36, the author told us in that text uh, that, that we had need for endurance. That, that's the concept. You need endurance. So hold fast, persevere, endure, don't shrink back, uh, re- lean into the promises of God, endure. Then immediately after Hebrews 11 in chapter 12, verse 1, the text that the Blake is going to get to do in a while for us, the author then exhorts them again, run the race with, you can actually say it, endurance, right? There's this sandwich of endurance, endurance on the front side, endurance on the back side. So in between the sandwich of endurance are examples of faith, of, of people who walked before, with endurance, in faith, and they persevered. They held tightly to Christ and persevered in confidence in him, and they clung to the blessings of God. So here's the idea. He wants endurance for you, so you can give a ton of definition, some inroads, and then a ton of stories of people who endured. And you're going to go, hey, run like they did. Do what they did. Now check out the, the brilliance of what the author does from a zoomed out perspective. The original audience was thinking about going back to the, to the law and leaving the Jesus stuff behind. They, they think that they're going back to the ways that their ancestors did face. So the, the, the author shows them a ton of the examples of their ancestors who are trusting in God's promise to bring a, a, a deliverer or a redeemer. 
They were, even though they didn't understand his name at that point, putting their faith in Jesus, the the future Messiah that God would send. They were trusting in Christ. They had faith that a Messiah would come, that God would send a a redeemer. And so the author's going, hey, you're thinking about leaving Jesus? Like they were waiting for Jesus. They just didn't know his name yet. Like you're not actually being like him if you run away from the Jesus stuff. So he's going to ask the original audience to keep the faith and have endurance. And by proxy, he's going to ask the same thing for us. Church, believers, brothers, sisters, have endurance. Run, don't bury your head, have endurance. Underneath much of chapter 10 and 12 is going to be the concept of dealing with hard times. Much of the book of Hebrews, really, but it specifically hits us a ton in chapter 10 and 12. And and the tricky reality that Hebrews kind of opens up in front of us is something that the entire Bible kind of presents. And it's this hard-to-grasp idea. It's, it's, It's not hard mentally, it's hard Functionally or, functionally or experientially, the, the hard reality that it lays before us that, man, we sometimes just don't like it, is God wants to change your heart more than he wants to change your circumstance. This is what God wants. At least in relation to your present circumstance, if you're following me. God is not primarily, primarily interested in fixing all of your immediate needs or wants. He is, however, interested in molding your heart. Why? So you can change your eternity. Many older, wiser theologians have spoke about this in this life and in sanctification and faith. God is preparing a people for eternity. Like we're not ready for it. He, he brings us in as a hot mess and he molds us into people who can walk in the glory of eternity with him. He's molding us to be prepared for glory. That molding is primary in his interest over circumstantial adjustments. Does that make sense? He wants to change who you are from the inside out more than he wants to adjust all the, the pieces that are moving in your life. This can be hard to reconcile days we feel things we don't like, though, right? Especially in the day that we live in. Now, if you trace uh, our country uh, back to kind of the, the, the beginning and the end, you begin to look at historical accounts, the expectation and the job of the government was actually very limited. In the beginning, the government was primarily entrusted with protecting the borders from foreign invasion, right? Got done, separated from, uh, from, from England or Britain, and, and, and we're, we're, okay, we're going to protect the borders. This was their primary job. Later, it transitioned into, well, not just protecting the borders, but the primary job of their government became to protect your right to life and owning your property. Uh, the U.S. was kind of like the Wild West, like, right? okay, we need some like laws so people can't go up and shoot you, steal your wife, your property. We need to kind of set some stuff in place. So the, 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 the government was placed over law and bringing some order around. But now, it doesn't seem like the only role of government, does it? Now what the government does is, is they do what many people have demanded from them. The, the, the government feels like their job is to mold all of our circumstantial realities. If you're like, hey, he's getting political. I'm not saying left or right. They all. They think that their job is to mold all of our circumstantial realities here for each citizen. This is why we hear statements in language all the time in our day that, 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 that people will look at certain situations and they'll go, what's the government going to do about that? Well, what are they going to do about that? How are they going to fix this? How's the government going to make that right? Why are they not offering this? How are they going to do this? We deserve that as a basic human right. What are they going to, right? This is the language of our culture. All of that language is about the expectation of the government to to mold any situational reality of your world that you don't like. Hey, fix it for me. What's happened with that though? That same expectation that has been placed on government has been placed on God and church. 
well, they'll fix all my circumstantial realities. If you're loving, why won't you? Why won't you do that? And, and, and the church, if you really love people and you follow your God and your so-called God is loving, why don't you fix everything? The, the demand for circumstantial realities is placed on God. Meaning though God is primarily concerned with hearts and eternity, we have began to demand that his priority become circumstance. Are you following with where I'm going here? We want him to fix all the things in our life. And we'll say all the things, like if God is loving, he would fix X, Y, and Z, and he'd do this, or he'd try this, or, or, or he'd adjust this for me. The eternal promises of God will be looked over in order to demand him meet the circumstantial reality that you don't enjoy, to alleviate the current situation that, that you find difficult and may actually be really, really difficult. If you find yourself anywhere near that disposition currently uh, uh, of being frustrated with God, of why he won't adjust something that's hard or, or difficult, this is why Paul wrote what he did in Romans 8.18, 8, and, and we need to hear that again. He says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy of being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is not a dehumanizing way to say, suck it up and look over real people's suffering. On the contrary, when suffering tries to steal your, your perspective or your joy, this text reminds us what God has in store for those who love him and follow him and put their, their trust in Jesus will not hold a candle to any of the suffering that you go through here. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt really bad. It's just nothing compared to what God is going to have. Paul is reminding us that the glory and beauty of God's promises will so fully eclipse the pain that it's going to boggle the mind. So it's like this mental exercise. Okay, shut your eyes with me. Imagine what heaven is going to be like in its full glory. Like, go for it. What it's going to be like. What your day-to-day life will be like. There's no war. There's no difficulty. And the tears are white. Like, just kind of like sit in there for a little bit, trying to wrap your uh, mind around the full glory and how amazing and perfect and fulfilling it will be to have the, the righteous king over all things and everything that is broken be undone. And, and, and no matter how far you press that in, in your imagination, here's the reality. What you came up with isn't even a fraction of what God has in store. This is what Paul wants to to tell you. What he has for his children is so much better. You cannot understand the beauty that God will reveal in his promises for his people. Yes, it hurts now. I think God sent Jesus to fix it, to fix it. One more point of emphasis that we have to dig into. Again, understanding that God is more interested in molding our hearts than our circumstantial realities of the front side. And, And here's the other point of where we need to kind of connect to the text in our modern way. The original audience was tempted to go back to Old, custom, old Covenant Judaism. Right? This means that they're, they're tempted to go back to, to, to finding their, their local high priest and, and, and making sacrifices and, and washings and all of the things that, that come up with that to avoid the suffering and the hardship that was around them. The reality is none of you are tempted to do that. Right? None, I mean, did any of you guys Google, like, how can I find a new rabbi or, or a new priest and... Like on Sunday, should I do it on Sunday or Saturday or once a year, like goat, bull, dove? Like no, nobody's doing that right now. But we are tempted every single day to blend into the culture around us, though. That's ours. They wanted to go to the goats and priests to, to make things easier. We want to we turn into chameleons to make things easier. Like just not stand out. To mute our witness for Christ 
in the visible confession of Christ from our lives. We want to go with the flow of culture and in some ways either adopt their ways or just kind of flow through them in a non-combative way whenever we can, kind of adopting their, their moral structures, just essentially doing like, hey, I'm just trying not to rock the boat because I don't want to be canceled. I've seen that happen. I don't want to do that. The temptation isn't to leave Christ behind. It's just not to really mention him with your actions whenever you can. Just kind of tamp down the Jesus stuff. They were going to leave him. We just want to, like, hide him. Go to a real simple New Testament example. We want to hide our light under a bushel. We want to cover it up instead of letting it shine, which is the opposite of following him unapologetically. It's the opposite of what we'll see as faith in this. What's fascinating about this is, is we are really good at manipulating things to validate sinful choices. So, so what's happened? We, a lot of times we'll go through the world trying to like not rock the boat, not offend anybody, and just kind of like do, do, the, do the thing to, to, to not make anybody mad. And so what's happened is a lot of people have repackaged that lack of faith as loving your neighbor. Oh, we should not be offensive ever in order that we can love like Jesus. We should never press back and we should, ne- we should just be not like this, this idea of that's what loving your neighbor looks like, but they forget that this kindness of Jesus they're trying to repackage isn't real. Jesus got killed for offending people. Does that mean, hey, go out church, your benediction is go offend the world? No, but, but the truth of God will offend some. This love that many advocate as the, 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 the don't possibly offend anyone or say anything hard or anything like that. To love people like Jesus, Jesus would rebuke that and condemn it. This is not what he calls us to. We're not meant to be the jerks who hold horrible signs in everyone's face. But we're not meant to be chameleons who functionally lie by hiding Jesus every time we can. Are you with me or is that hard? Probably hard, Okay. I think the functional question I have for you and I, how accustomed are you to trying to fit in? Right, the example that I see is like the, ever walked out of an MU football game or something and you get the yard of the, you know, like going through the people just so you don't like shoulder bump and, and, and brush, brush into people. Like how accustomed are you right now to flowing through your theological walk like that? I just don't wanna hit anybody shoulder to shoulder. I just, want to, I just want to get out as fast as I can. I don't want to cause any weird stuff. I just, I just want to get out. Is that, is that what is slowly over time entered in for you? Because if that is, the author is going to ask you and me both to not shrink back anymore. Here's my hope in this. that The Holy Spirit would maybe show us one area that we didn't realize we were shrinking back. We're not trying to be jerks to the entire world. But I believe in my own heart, I have areas where I've thought I've had more faith than I actually do, and the Lord in his kindness may go, hey, buddy, nobody will see the light of God if you keep doing that. And for me to respond in faith by going, I'm sorry. <laughs> Give me faith to trust you in that. Even if at times it will walk me into trouble. Transitioning into the actual text that's all leading. Chat GPT, right? Everyone's talking about it. 
I've talked about it before. I'm a child. So the first time I played with it, I asked it why Joel Osteen has a mullet. That was literally the first thing I typed in. I asked it to write an apology card to my wife. I wasn't actually in trouble, but I sent it to Blake because I thought it was hilarious. Um, She never got it. But I just like, I want to come up with whatever like snarky thing I could do to go like, how do you navigate around some of this just goofiness? Like, what will you do when I throw this at you? I think the technology is kind of fun and it's nice to, to play around with, but I ran into this pastor. He's, he's not local to Columbia. Uh, there's another group that I, that I had a lunch with and, and he was super excited to tell everybody there that like, I'm using chat GPT for like real church stuff. You're like, oh no, <laughs> like real stuff. Um, which is a terrible idea. Uh, so to prove it's no bueno, I used it for this sermon. I asked ChatGPT to define faith for me. And it did so in an interesting way. It said, faith can be defined as belief or trust in something or someone without requiring, here's the words, proof or evidence. On the surface, it kind of sounds good, right? Like it, 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 it seems like it runs kind of parallel in a way to the biblical definition, but, but the nuance is, is interesting to me. Chat GPT is not actually artificial intelligence. You get that, right? right? It doesn't come up with a, a new thought ex nihilo out of, out of nothing. That's not how it works. In its current form, it has access to the entire internet. So when you ask it a question, it queries every single response that you and I and other humans have put into the internet And it aggregates that information that other people have input to create really impressive answers to questions. In essence, ChatGPT is a supercomputer that compiles all the the smart or popular responses that the world gives and it spits out a coherent answer based on what a lot of other people have already said. So when I asked it to define faith for me, it gave the popular sentiment, I believe. Faith is believing in something that there's no proof or evidence of. Does that rub you in an interesting way? Because to me, it's telling us, I think it just described a fool. A person who believes something out of sheer stupidity because they're not smart enough to know any better. It's taking the cultural answer about the way we'll live our lives and placing it on top of us. And maybe you think, well, you're just reading into that too much. I don't think I am. In Hebrews 11, the author gives us a framework to find faith with, and it won't be necessarily exhaustive, but it, but it will be a framework to kind of understand what faith is and it isn't. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Assurance and conviction hope and unseen. I stole this from Sam Storms as well. Faith is not believing in your heart what the mind otherwise tells you is not true. Faith is not trusting in something in which there are no facts. Faith is not an existential blind leap into the dark. Faith is not putting your trust into someone you know nothing about. Faith is not the opposite of knowledge. Faith is not the enemy of reason. Faith is not believing in something that runs counter to the obvious, the evident, and the proven. Faith is not superstition. Faith is not a positive mental attitude. And faith is not wishful thinking. 
Biblical faith has a clear focus on hope, though. But it's hope surrounding what is unseen, whether you can't see it because it's in the spiritual realm or you can't see it because it isn't fully here yet. Biblical faith is not code for blind faith or dumb faith. Biblical faith is, and I like this way of saying it, biblical faith is warranted confidence and justified trust. It is confident assurance in the hope that we were promised by God. It is a a bold-faced belief in what our eyes cannot currently see in part or maybe even in full yet. And this is where I think the the difference between chat GPT and the Bible kind of really pops out. Biblical faith isn't a faith created out of nothing. Right? Their definition is it requires no evidence, no proof, no foundation. That sounds more like the definition uh, of, to be honest, when I sat in my office, that sounds like how you define a schizophrenic's hallucinations. Like they see the world in some way that there's no reality to it. While the world may feel like our faith is delusional, we know it's based upon the words of God himself. Remember the warranted confidence. Why is it warranted? Because God gave his word, and the words of God rest on the immutable character of God. What firmer foundation will you find anything to put your hope in? Again, will the world think you're foolish? Yep. But if you believe the creator is sovereign over all and cannot be moved and he does not change, there's no better place to put the full weight of your confidence in than in God's words. I wonder how you would have defined faith prior to this text and I think there's some nuance that it it added from my own mind, and I wonder if you'd feel similar. Faith is not just things that you believe in, as if faith is the affirmation of something is true, right? You know the true-false thing in school? Faith is not just all things you think are true, right? Like, I have faith that Jesus is Savior, and that he is uh, the, the, the son of God. And when you look at Jesus, you see the father and that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit when he ascended back to the right hand of the father. These are all true statements, but, but, but they may not be a, a, a realistic understanding of the fullness of what faith is. What stood out to me about this text is it gives faith an environment or context to live inside. Faith takes place when things are hoped for. So if you think something is true, but it doesn't lead to hope, it's not faith. It's a fact. Hope for things not possessed or not fully manifested yet. This means faith, with, uh, faith always carries an, an element of, of a future reality to it. It always has the eye on the horizon towards the fulfillment of something. This is why faith isn't just a fact of what's true because faith without an eye on the things that God has promised that are still coming isn't actually faith. Again, you may think, well, is that semantics? Are we like engaging in like needless word gymnastics? No, I don't think so. Why? Remember this section on faith is in the sandwich about endurance. The goal of faith is not mental fact. The goal of faith is endurance. Faith isn't about the facts we know because faith does not stir hope. Faith is holding on to what you know is factual 
even when you can't see it in your eyes, in a way that stirs biblical hope inside of your soul that God will finish and honor his promises so strongly that it causes you to persevere even in hardship. That's the equation. Faith produces hope. Hope produces perseverance. Endurance is ultimately perseverance. It's the ability to not quit in hard things and hard situations and difficult realities. What should cause the original audience to hold fast their faith in Christ in hard times is the same thing that should cause us to not mute our Christian witness in the modern day. Because God has made us alive in Christ if our faith is in him, given us the Holy Spirit to walk through the storm with us, and promised us a future glory that's so beautiful and unimaginable we can't even wrap our minds around it. Everything we go through now is only a, it's not even a speck or a blip on the radar to what God will have. It points back to Romans 8. Don't shrink back in fear. Why? Because the prize is an order of magnitude greater than the pain. See, here's the problem with that. We can think that's hard. It's not saying the pain isn't real right now. It's just saying the prize is so much better. And Jesus will be through in the pain with you through his spirit. Now, why does this matter? Why are we straining to get the, the full picture of faith here? Well, Hebrews eleven six tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God. We can tend to think, well, God wants perfect actions, perfect obedience, perfect attendance. Maybe he wants us to earn or perform or do or, or be more or like give this overt like thing where we kind of prove ourselves, And all of those are kind of duty-filled ways to look at faith and acceptance. See, we are not demanded to perform, but we are called to follow through faith. This following is putting your faith in what Jesus is, has done and who he is. The one who has made redemption possible and always knowing that he will one day split the skies and return and fix fully what is broken. Even down to giving us glorified bodies that do not break down and get sinus infections because everything I'm allergic to is in Missouri, right? Glorified bodies. And he'll reign justly over all creation, chaos and hatred and war and violence in the mind or in the streets will all end. And we need to press further. We aren't demanded to perform. But we are required to work intentionally to keep our faith strong. You don't earn your salvation, but your communion, the felt reality of how you walk through your faith, there are things that you can do that strengthen that faith to make that better, and there are things that you can ignore that will destroy it, that will mess it up. It's teaching us. Faith isn't automatic. You've got to work with it a little bit. This is why it said that what it did in the text last week, to not neglect gathering together with one another. This is why it called us to, to stir one another up for, for good works and, and love. Why? Because we need it, and our faith will shrink if we're on our own. We need the gospel spoken to us and over us. We need to, to pray, to connect with our Abba, to have our hearts refreshed. We need the Holy Spirit to, to lead us in what is true and show us where we're, we're not looking rightly at him or the promises or, or the way we're meant to, to walk. Because if we don't, we'll begin to forget God's promises. We'll begin to lose hope, and the current suffering will feel too strong to walk through. Verse 2 speaks with laser focus on, on what I kind of mentioned a little bit before. The, the original audience's situation um, 
It says saying that the, the, the great people of old, like the ancestors of their faith who followed God well prior, they did so with faith in the coming Savior, faith in what they couldn't see, faith in the specific one that the original audience was trying to walk away from. And hear me, they were commended for faith in the one that we may be trying to downplay and hide so we don't cause issues. Their commendation didn't come through hiding, it came through faith. What's the point? He wants us to receive the condemnation, or the commendation, that's not the right word, that the ones of old did by becoming confident in Christ and what Christ will someday complete fully. He wants us to be so confident in it that we will live radically unashamed lives for him in the here and now, marked by passionate love from faith riveted and rooted in the promises of God. Why? Because they stand as a better word over our lives and over anything that could come at us. So what are we supposed to take away so far? I think it's helpful to note faith's environment is hope. If you have faith but it doesn't lead to hope, there's something that's not working quite right with that faith. And faith's outcome is meant to be uh, activism in the sense of boldness and unafraid living. Again, I hope that you don't hear me trying to create this loud, mean, yelling, uh, Facebook keyboard warrior. Like, in fact, please take none of this to like keyboards on Facebook. That's not what he's trying to do. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though. Fiery furnace, guys. You can read the story later if you want. In the Old Testament, they were demanded to worship the king like the rest of the people in culture were. Everyone else in culture was doing it. They were demanded to fall in line like everyone else was into false worship. And if they didn't, they would be placed in a fiery furnace and burnt alive. The faith they had in God to be their redeemer and to have their future in his hands through the promises and covenants that he had made to them caused them to say, no, king, I'm not going to do it. Even if it meant fire is the consequence, I'm not going to do it. This, whether in big ways or small ways, is the type of faith he wants us to have. We're not supposed to all get try, try to get thrown into a fiery furnace ourselves, but God wants his people to kind of stiffen our backs and place our face to the, our fa- face to the wind to where we can say, man, I'm not looking for trouble, but come what may, I'm going to cling to Jesus. I'm not going to hide him. And I'm not going to mute him. Whether the water is calm, whether the water is raging all around us, the faith that says Jesus is the one that gives me life and I will not abandon him or hide him. He has my eternity in his hands, even if following him leads me to places that I'd really rather not go right now. Again, none of this is meant to be heavy handed or cruel. It's not meant to be a demand to to do better and and say more and yell at people. That's not it. The author is simply laying before you, your Abba doesn't want you to be scared. Your good father wants your assurance and hope to be so strong that it just drives you forward in whatever way that looks like. So strong that it produces steadfastness and, and strength in God. So strong that it becomes an anchor and refuge to you. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. 
I found it very interesting looking at this text. He gives us a definition. He shows us like the track record of the ancestors in the faith. Surprise, their faith was in Jesus, even if they didn't know his name, so you can't walk away from him and be like them. And then the first gateway before he goes into all the other stories is about faith and creation. And then there's story after story after story after story of a faithful person. So it raises the question, what all does faith cover? Like, what all is it the lens for? What all is it involved in? Is it just the idea of what saves us and what redeems us and kind of what we talk about here at church and what we sing about and things like that? And the author's going to say, no, faith literally covers and shades all things. What do you mean all things? Think of creation. Got it. And everything after. Faith is involved in all of that. Oh, well, that's, that, that's a lot. Faith is so deeply embedded in who we are that it shapes the way that we view even the way that the earth was created. It is our lens for all things. None of us are around when, when God hung the stars in the sky. None of us were there when he, when, when he, when he separated the, the waters from the land and, and, and the sky uh, from the land. But yet we believe in faith that God created it. Why? Because of his word. Because we have the God who speaks. And he speaks to us, and we believe in it, and that belief shapes everything that comes after it. Because if we believe that God was the creator, we affirm the word of God. And the word teaches us that we were uh, created in such a way, and the world was created in such a way. And the word shows us that we, as people, were created to give God the creator glory. There's this idea in creation of of intentional, intelligent design and glory giving for all things. If we believe this, then it means that we live our minds with God's glory in mind, not just not having tension. Even if doing so is going to walk us into hardship at times, we live our lives acknowledging that God is creator of all first. And we also acknowledge that he created things to work a certain way second. Hear me, nothing will get you in hotter water than this right now. The doctrine of creation is something the world wants to rip out of your hands. Right? Verse 1 of Genesis starts with the creation account, but do you know what is also in the creation account? God created them male and female. There's gender and power and marriage and so many things all inside of this and the way that God relates to his people, all inside of that the very thing that our culture is raging about trying to steal the glory of God away. I, I hope as I like, pause for a second, like, is he getting political? I've never told you who to vote for. I'm just trying to show you the text. For us in the current cultural moment, we're not threatened with a furnace or a lion's den, but we are being bombarded constantly with accepting, agreeing, validating and championing things that blatantly challenge God and the way he created all things. And what do they do when we roll with them? They begin to say either in word or in deed that God was false, wrong, not real, or his glory doesn't matter. We'll regularly be pressing into... um, (laughs) 
we'll be regularly pressed into trying to adopt and worship the ways of the culture. If we're not careful, if we try and hide too much, we'll begin to flat out deny our God. And the ways of the culture will wedge them into our heart and we'll still think that we never left Jesus behind. Again, this is by no means telling you to scream on the mountaintop of every issue in culture. But there's going to come a time when someone asks you or the situation unfolds and the Spirit says to you, what do you believe about this? Whether you're at the water cooler at work, whether you're at the neighborhood. Right, right now we're at the baseball field a lot. Both of my kids are playing baseball. Whether you're at the gym or your hobby, anything like that. There's going to be coming a point in time where, where, where the, where the culture is going to go. Have you been molded our way too? Do you see it this way as well? You're going to have a choice at that point. Do I reject God to please the people around me? Or do I humbly share what I believe? See, this is where the rubber meets the road for our context. This is just one of a thousand ways that you and I will have to decide. Will we live by faith or will we shrink back? Will we take the the culture's view of creation or how the world was designed Or will we, with faith, face the lumps that might possibly come by becoming truth-tellers, by not hiding the bushel or the light under the bushel? And I'd never seen in Hebrews 11 this reality, and it just struck me with awe. Definition. And the opening of faith is even just, like, baseline is acknowledging God's hand in creation and what that means. It's not meant to be like the, the superhero faith or the epic faith. And there's so many people around us who want to mold and be like, I don't think that's real. And the Bible is just like, hey, this is the gateway in. God has created things in such a way. One of the interesting talks that I've had with a lot of pastors over the, the last six months is the storyline of the Bible and the, cur- and the coverage of it inside of our churches. I was talking to Blake a little bit about this last night. The, the way that we've covered the, the biblical arc may have become lopsided on accident and it may have become an issue. So what, are those, what is the storyline of the Bible? God created creation, fall, we sinned, broke our relationship with God. Redemption, God's plan to redeem all things through Jesus and reconciliation, the, the putting together of it all when Christ returns. The, di- the idea is that we have been extremely, it's like reformed people, we are, we are super thorough on fall, and redemption. You're like, bad person, inside and out, needed Jesus, got it, cross. Like, we're, we're, we're great at a lot of that. We've lagged a little bit, maybe, with reconciliation. In some cases, I actually think we've done pretty well on that. We've severely lacked with our theology of creation. We just kind of skim over. God created. Then everything broke. We've never asked, like, well, what does it mean that he created? And why does it say these things? And why does it say it this way? And and if you're asking, okay, well, why does that matter? How do you understand redemption clearly unless you understand creation, what God is redeeming? If we do not look closer into creation and the way that God created and the order and the things that he had, we will never actually understand where he's going and what he wants. For this reason, we're going to try and just actively speak more into this and understand just some of the ways that God created things. There are, and I will confess to you, there are things that, that people, uh, that, that are opinion, that people say that God did this and maybe he didn't, but there are things that are just not murky at all. 
We're going to try and just help us equip ourselves in some of those massive debates by, by trying to acknowledge and increase our theology of creation. God, what did you intend for the world and for me? Not so I can beat people in the head, but I don't want to be a liar, and I also want to live inside of your story and under where, understand where you're pointing me at. God cares about these things. So we have definitely run out of time. Um, we won't be able to cover the, the specific stories in the text this time. We're going to dive right back in next week when we begin to address those. The hope is that as we press forward in this, that we will see clearly if we have in our own way begin to hide Jesus and not seen it. Not to beat us in, 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 over the head, but that we will begin to see if there's some just kind of habits and things that we're not thinking of and ways that we're just trying to, 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 to make Jesus not cause waves for us. And that if we have, and I would just say like, maybe where we have, that the Lord would grow proper faith in that. And that we'd have hope that leads us to persevere why? So that we're not in trouble? No, so Christ is made more visible. So we live inside of his story to glorify him like we were created to so we can be formed to live in glory with the Lord. If you have a chance this week, go. I'd actually say after church, if you have a chance, go and, and open your Bible and read the parable of the talents. If you want to angle in on this, sincerely do and ask the Spirit to speak to you through it because maybe the way I'm seeing this isn't right, but the idea that God places talents in our hands, specific things. Different people have different talents. It's okay. But he places things in our hands and expects us to use those things to glorify him instead of what in the story? Instead of burying them. If we lack faith and we're always trying to hide Jesus from the culture to make things easier or to, you know, because we fear anxiety or because we bought into this like shallow view of love that other people have kind of laid before us. Isn't that the exact definition of bearing the talents? And the, the words that the Lord has for those who are ashamed of him and buries his bury the talents. Man, it's heavy. I don't want to do that. I want to go fire and brimstone and, and, and scare the you-know-what out of all us, but I want to know if I'm burying him and where he's calling me to have faith. I want to saturate this all with the gospel band. You guys can come back up. We're not being told to work hard or produce more. We're being asked to see the profound blessing and grace we have. To see it so clearly that it emboldens our action. Your father wants you to be able to be brave. He's not asking you to be a superhero, but the spirit is with you. And he wants you not to be scared all the time. And your savior promises to be with you through the spirit even when you are scared. You were not meant to cower in fear or look at the exit all the time. You were meant to see that the same power that rose Christ from the grave is in you and walks with you and empowers you and wants to glorify God in ways that you couldn't even imagine. Will it walk us headlong into some frustrated people at times? Yeah, it will. But man, we want to see God's glory. We want to see people come to know him. And I want to live inside of his story well because he's good.
So I hope that that would be stirred in us through this. We'll come to the table today and remembering that all we have and even the faith that we have, the ability to even see our need from Jesus is a gift given. So as we begin to ask the Lord to grow our faith in, in the next several weeks, you can come to the table, whether you feel strong in your faith or weak in your faith or whether you realize, man, I've, I've been hiding so much, you still get to come to the table and know that the Lord doesn't regret sacrificing for you. And he's molding your heart. Why? Because what we'll see later in Hebrews, he disciplines and, and adjusts the, the lives of the people that he loves. Why? Because he's molding your heart for glory. So you still get to come to the table and take the bread and take the cup and say, your body is broken. I do not have to destroy myself for this. You were. And your blood was spilled. I am forgiven in this. Help me walk in that reality. Father, help me. Give me faith. Give me perseverance. Let me trust you. And I would ask you in the middle of some of these things, if, if you're wrestling in hard ways and you figure, man, I, I, I am scared. I don't know what to do. And I have good reason for being fearful. Labor with the Lord in prayer. This Holy Spirit, help me. I just don't know if I'm seeing reality clearly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trusting in, in, in the reaction of people more than the, the grace and mercy that you have. Please help me to see you. Holy Spirit, paraclete, teach me how to walk through this well. Teach me how to trust Jesus well. That would be our hope as we come, that we're, in, that we're encouraged by the table, that our faith is built. And whether we've been bold or whether we've been hiding like crazy, we'd see the love and kindness of God. He's so patient. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, you can stand up. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the night that he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in that same way he also uh, took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If all of this is confusing, I feel like this is what the, the spirit just dropped into my mind. All we're trying to do is remember the Lord at the table and outside the doors. That's what he wants. He's not trying to crush you, hurt you, destroy your life. We believe that life comes from the constant memory of what Jesus has done. Even if some people aren't gonna like it. So we want to come to the table and be built up in that. And we want to walk out being built up in that. Our God is good. And he's merciful and he's kind and is strong and his promises are so much better. So much better than anything that you will go through.